Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's a joyful sound to hear those pages of the Bible rustling as I sat there. So, uh, what a joy it is. My name is Joey Kraft, and I also serve as one of the pastors here. And I have the privilege and the responsibility of opening up God's living, holy, weighty word that we might see and savor Jesus and all of his goodness. Right? And this is certainly something that I cannot do alone. I need God's help. And you need God's help to hear and to listen and to consider. And so, again, let me pray for us. God, we do come to you this morning and we ask that through the Spirit you would take the word that we might rejoice in Christ, that he might be exalted. I pray for those this morning that are already trusting in him, that they would be built up in courage. I pray for the weak and the weary. Would you would you bring the ball to the gospel? I pray for those that are here that are not trusting in Christ, that you, through your word, would bring forth faith, that you might receive the glory of your due, and souls might be full of joy. And all three beings said together, Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we continue the meditation on the Gospel of Luke. And Gospel is that word that simply means good news. So this book of the Bible is Luke's narrative account of the good news of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, revealing why that is good news for all who trust and treasure Christ. I don't know how you've been encouraged. I'm so thankful for Nathan's faithful preaching each week to open up this book for us. And one of the things that's been most encouraging to me is just going back to those opening verses and remembering why Luke wrote this book. Do you remember those opening words? Luke writes to tell us all that was accomplished by Jesus. Why? So that we may be what? Certain. That's right. So that we may be certain about who Jesus is and what he did and why it all matters. And with that certainty comes firm assurance and full joy that compels us to treasure God no matter what we face. So God knows, and we heard this morning, God knows that we all have struggles and doubts, trials and temptations, that we're bombarded with these things. God knows that left to ourselves, we'll doubt his love and we'll disorder our own love. That's the essence of rebelling against God and rejecting Him. So God knows all this, so what does He do? He enters into the story. The author enters into the story. So through the person of Christ, Jesus, He he enters into the mess that God might bring His beloved children home into His presence forever. This is what we've been seeing in the first three chapters of Luke. In chapter 1, Jesus, the Son of God, is promised. In chapter 2, Jesus, the Son of God, is born. In chapter 3, John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus. God the Father proclaims His Son is Jesus. And then we have a genealogy that proves it's all true. Luke wants us to be certain about who this Jesus is. Not the Jesus we might have heard of in our, and somewhere else, the Jesus we might have made up in our own head, but this Jesus according to Scripture. And now in chapter 4, Jesus Himself proves He is, in fact, the sinless Son of God. Let's read Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted 
by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give to whom I will. If then, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered them, It is said, You shall not put the Lord God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from them until an opportune time. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. As we jump into this passage, it's important to notice the flow of Luke's thoughts. So Jesus has just come up out of the baptismal waters, 3.22. The heavens open, the Spirit descends on Jesus, and the Father shouts from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is followed by the genealogy that concludes in 3.38, by telling us Jesus is the Son of Adam, the Son of God. And what's next? Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. So the first event after Jesus' baptism is this time of testing in the wilderness for 40 days, which comes right after mentioning Adam. Luke is setting us up. He wants us to understand what's at stake in this temptation. You see, he's called to mind Adam. And we remember Adam and Eve faced one temptation and failed. And here we have Jesus hungry in the wilderness for 40 days. And we remember the story of Israel. In Exodus 4.22, God tells Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, he may serve me. Through God's mighty hand, Israel, God's son, as it were, is brought out of slavery to Egypt. And they do what? They go through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea. And what does God do? God leads them into the wilderness. And what happens? They get hungry. God feeds them and they complain. They fail to trust God and wonder for years. Adam fails. Israel fails. Now we have Jesus having just been baptized and is hungry in the wilderness. And we have Jesus being tempted by Satan just like Adam. The scene is set. The tension is palpable. Is Jesus the greater and second Adam who succeeds where the first one failed? Is Jesus the true and new Israel who obeys when the previous people rebel? Is Jesus the perfect, sinless Son of God that's so assured of the Father's love, he rejects the enemy lies? 
That's the driving question of Luke chapter 4, 1 through 13. Who is Jesus? Everyone else has failed. Adam failed. Israel failed. I failed. You have failed. But not Jesus. Jesus is the sinless Son of God who defeats Satan in our place that we might delight in the pleasures of the Father no matter what we face. And even when we fail. That's the main thought of this passage. See, this passage is not ultimately about fighting temptation like Jesus. Does it have something to say about that? Perhaps. But Jesus did not endure suffering in the wilderness so he could be our role model. Jesus triumphed over the temptations that he might be our righteousness. Jesus is not just a model to follow. He gives us mercy when we fail. See, Jesus as the son of Adam represents us. Jesus as the son of God rescues us. Luke is telling us, let it be known for certain that Jesus is the sinless Son of God who defeats Satan in our place that we might delight in the pleasures of the Father. And this is good news for us, isn't it? Some of us are too familiar with our failures. Even right now, some of you feel suffocated by your shame and your guilt. You feel dirty and unworthy. And you wonder, you walk in here this morning wondering, is there any hope? Is there any healing for me? You're tempted to believe the lie that God would never want you in his presence. Others of us are tempted to believe a different lie. That we're so good, we've actually earned the right to be in God's presence. And we don't wonder if there's any hope. We just wonder why can't people be awesome like we are. And if you're like me, you have the unique weakness of being able to bounce between the two fairly regularly. See, the temptations of my soul are to want to be defined by my failures or take self-righteous pride in my successes. They're never far from me. And no matter what lies we're tempted to believe, this text reminds us our hope is not found in what we do. And we don't have to be shackled by how we fail. Our hope is in Jesus. He is our representative. He lived the perfect life we could never live on our own. And Jesus is our righteousness. He gives us what we could never be on our own. And this is good news. It frees us because it angers our soul and animates our lives with hope and happiness. So for my non-Christian friends, I'm so thankful that you have gathered with us. If you're not trusting in Christ alone, I've been praying for you this week. And I've been praying that you would see Jesus for who he is. The promised Savior, the sinless Son of God that defeats Satan for all who trust and treasure him. Who rescues us from our sin that we might enjoy God as Father forever. That's what Luke wants us to see. Before moving into these specific temptations, I just want to make a couple of notes in these first couple of verses. First, in verse 1, did you see that it was the Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness of Egypt? This is a divine appointment of God. Satan's trying to derail God's plan of redemption, but this is actually God's plan and God's initiative. So God, in his good yet mysterious sovereignty, takes the ill desires of Satan to prove the worth of Christ. Beloved, we may not understand the sovereignty of God in our lives, but we know he's up to something good. 
Also notice the spiritual realm is real. Satan is real. And he's doing the tempting. Not God. Verse 2 says, Jesus was being tempted by who? By Satan. By the devil. So I realize that in our enlightened day, talking about a personal, active devil in people's lives can seem like a foolish religious hangover from the dark ages. See, we treat the reality of the devil like fantasy, that he doesn't really exist at all. And if he does exist, he's nothing more than a cartoon. A cute little guy in a red suit, some funny horns, and a wimpy pitchfork. He's more friend than he is foe. Perhaps Satan's greatest trick is convincing us he and his demonic force are going to fall. Maybe right now you're thinking, does this guy actually believe this stuff? First I say, yes. Jesus, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. And this temptation might be so subtle as this right here in your head. Don't really believe what this guy is saying. But scripture tells us Satan prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. But don't be fooled. His devouring may not happen all at once. Sometimes it just happens one small bite at a time. See, Satan's greatest goal isn't necessarily to destroy you at once, but just to make your heart dull over time, so your love for God, who was there at all, disintegrates one degree after another. See, Luke 4 reminds us that we are involved in a spiritual war, that life is not just a cruise ship, but it is a battleship where we lock arms and we fight. And Luke 4 reminds us, not just that we're in a battle, but it tells us good news, that we fight a defeated devil because we have a conquering Christ. With that glorious news, let's turn our attention to these temptations. And here's what we'll see. Satan tempts Jesus to doubt his father's provision, deny his father's plans, distort his father's promises. Doubt, deny, distort. Temptation number one. Look again at Luke chapter four, starting in verse two. And he, Jesus, ate nothing during those days. When they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these the stone to become bread. So Notice when the devil aims his attack. His first words are what? If you are what? If you're the son of God. Satan zeroes in on his target, fires his shot at the identity of the son and the goodness of the father. Now, I don't think Satan is trying to get Jesus to question if he's actually a son of the father. I think he's trying to get him to say, what does it mean to be a son? And how good is your See, Satan is tricky. Instead of a direct assault, you're not a son. He uses doubt, which is often harder to see. And it can grow and fester and linger. And like an unruly weed, it grows in the soul and can eventually choke out life. Satan wants Jesus to doubt his father's love and selfishly exploit his sonship. At the core of each temptation, you'll notice... Satan's aim is to disrupt the harmonious, loving, joyful relationship of the Son and the Father. 
So Satan is simply saying, Jesus, uh, if you're the son of God, and your father is so good, then why are you hungry? Uh, you're, you're, you know your father's holding out on you, right? Did you think this is the way you were going to start your public ministry? I mean, your stomach should be growling, given to your desires. They're legitimate. Turn these stones into bread and get a little something to finish your tummy, Jesus. Come on. If you read the Bible, this should sound familiar to you. Satan's doing the same thing he did to Adam and Eve. It's no coincidence. Adam and Eve were tempted to eat food apart from the Father's will by questioning God's goodness. What did he say to Adam and Eve? Did God really say to Jesus, if you're the Son of God? In each instance, what's he doing? He's sowing seeds of doubt. And here's the question. What's the big deal? Jesus could do this. And in fact, we'll see in a few chapters, he will do this. He will miraculously make bread. Why not do it now? After all, do you notice that the text tells us the fast is ended? It's over. And Jesus is hungry. This is no fake temptation. It's real. The desires are real. The hunger pains are raw. Jesus suffers and attempted like us. He's the eternal Son of God, being fully God, but yes, He's truly and fully human. He is hungry. Hebrews tells us, for because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He's able to help those who are being tempted. And Jesus is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Just as an aside, this, this reminds us temptation alone isn't sin. And it reminds us we have a friend who knows our struggles and weaknesses in Jesus. He sympathizes with us. But back to that question, what's so sinful about making a little bread? I mean, come on, lighten up, Jesus. Don't be so serious, man. Satisfy your desires. So if I'm Jesus, here's what I'm doing. I'm not just making bread, I'm making a bakery. And then I'm going to sit down and eat bread and tell Satan I'm going to crush his head. But that's not what Jesus does. What's going on? Well, we have to see this is not so much about food as it is trust. Satan is trying to introduce an element of selfish disobedience into Christ's relationship with the Father. He sees an area of vulnerability, of real desire, and believes to be good soil to grow distrust, so he throws in the seeds of doubt. Beloved, his tactics have changed. And the question is, will Jesus trust in the goodness of his Father and his provision and, and seek his needs to be met? Or you try to meet him in some other way. Well, Jesus let his immediate feelings and experiences be more real to him than his father's words. Everything the father affirms Satan's attack. The shout from heaven, you're my beloved son and I'm well pleased. Satan, if you're God's son, why is there so much displeasure? How will Jesus respond? Verse 4. And Jesus answered them, it is written. See, Jesus knows the word of God, but even more importantly, he knows the God of the word. See, scripture isn't a magic wand he waves, but it leads him to the Father he loves, and he knows who loves him. Jesus is like a sponge. He is soaked up in scripture, so when he is squeezed, that's what comes out. So each time Satan speaks, Jesus answered, did you notice it? It is written. It is written. 
forth. And third is said. And in these three instances, Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. And interestingly, each quote comes between chapter 6 and 8, addressing Israel when they are in the wilderness. When tempted to eat, Jesus responds, Man shall not live on bread alone. If you go look up the rest of the verse, it goes on and says, But by every word it comes from the mouth of God. This is Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. It's where the Lord tells Israel that he is the one who caused them to hunger in the wilderness. And he is the one who provided manna for them to eat. And it says, God was testing Israel to see what was what in their heart. To see if they'd be satisfied with God's provision in God's way. But Israel, they wanted to go back and eat steaks in slavery. They weren't happy with God's provision of bread in the wilderness. So they grumbled. They complained. Now Jesus is testing. What's in his heart? See, in quoting this passage from Deuteronomy, I think Jesus is saying something like, yeah, I'm hungry. But I will not grumble and I will not doubt my father's provision. My father put me in the wilderness. My father will get me out of the wilderness. I trust in the all-sufficient goodness of my father and I feed on his word. I know that I am the well-loved son. See, Jesus does not let his immediate feelings and experiences direct him. He trusts God's facts. He places present experiences in the context of his father's explicit words. He knows he's the beloved son. Jesus is not fighting Satan to gain his father's approval, but because he already has it. And here's what's amazing. He defeats Satan, not with superpowers, but sonship. Do you see that? He disarms the devil, not with divine omnipotence, but human obedience. Jesus is the perfect man. And in his human nature, yes, he sympathizes with us, but even more, oh, even more beloved, he is the perfect substitute for us. He is the sinless son of God who defeats Satan in our place. When the devil came to Adam, think about it. It was paradise all around. He had his wife. By his side, his belly was full. He had no reason to doubt God. And he did. Contrast that with Christ. The devil comes to him, he's in the wilderness. All by himself. Stomach empty. Weak. He had every reason to doubt God. And he doesn't. Despite the circumstances, Despite his experiences, despite his feelings, Jesus is so assured of the Father's love for him and the Father's goodness to him, he prevails even when Satan tempts him to doubt his Father's provision. This is Jesus. But Satan's not done yet. He goes on and he tempts Jesus to deny the Father's plans. Look again at verses 5 through 7. Temptation number 2, deny the Father's plans. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If then you will worship me, 
it will all be yours. Satan switches his tactics. If Jesus can't be tempted with the mundane, how about the marvelous? This move from bread to kingdoms of the world. I'm not sure how this happens, but somehow Satan shows Jesus some, some, some vision. And it's like all the, all the flags of every kingdom of every nation that has ever existed, all those flags are now flying in honor of Christ. The kingdoms of the world are ready to abandon their idols and honor and worship Jesus as king. Same thing. Isn't this what you want, Jesus? In fact, isn't this what you deserve? Didn't you come to set up a kingdom? We have to see what Satan is doing. He mixes a little truth with some lies. What do you have? He's the great deceiver. He does have authority and power. Scripture talks about it. He has influence. He has a kingdom. He has a rule. But he does so on a leash. Any power he has comes by permission, not by possession. So Satan tries to give away what he doesn't truly own to get what he doesn't deserve. This is the nature of temptation. And then again, the temptation is real. You have to understand that this temptation is real. We can sometimes read this like, oh, Jesus, you know, fully God. He didn't experience it like me. No, Jesus experienced temptation like us, even to a greater degree than us. Because why? This is something right for you that belongs to Christ, and he will eventually get it. But Satan offers it to him now. Do you see what Satan is doing? He's offering Jesus a crown apart from a cross. Pleasure, no pain. He wants Jesus to establish a kingdom based on immediate greatness, not eternal glory. He's saying, Jesus, don't you deserve a kingdom? Guess what? I ship Amazon Prime. Just click this worship me button and it'll be yours overnight. If you're the son of God, why act like a servant? If you're a king, why be crucified? Let's bypass Calvary and let's go straight to glory. This is so tempting for Christ. You know he would go on and ask his father? If there's any other way, let this cup, this wrath, pass from me. Everything was easy for Jesus, but not the cross. And that's where this temptation strikes. Satan's awful. No more suffering. No betrayal, no poverty, no mocking, no arrest, no beating, no humiliation, no shame, no crucifixion. You don't have to go through any of that, Jesus. I have a better offer. Comfort and glory. Live like a king. Claim your blessing now. See, Satan's really just the first prosperity preacher. 
He points to all the things of the world. Success, status, power, prestige, and says, get them now, Jesus. They're yours. He's tempting Jesus to go his own way and walk away of his father. He's tempting Jesus, take the good gifts and deny the giver. Again, we're reminded of the parallels to Adam. He too was offered the immediate path to glory. God doesn't want you to eat because then you'll be like him. You'll be like God. So you should eat and you should enjoy it now and you can be like God. Adam listened to lies. How will Jesus respond? Verse 8. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Again, this quote is from Deuteronomy 6, 13, where God warns his people against idolatry that supreme allegiance to anyone or to anything is false worship. And yet what happens? Israel repeatedly fails. They kneel down to the golden calves. They worship tribal deities over and over. Adam failed. Israel failed. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is ruled by a greater love and a higher status than this world can give. He's ruled by his sonship and love for God flowing from his father's love for him. So this love fuels him so much he'll delay wearing a crown and give his life up hanging on the cross. In fact, as he hung upon the cross, Jesus is, or he's still being tempted. And you know what the temptation is? If you're the son of God, come down off the cross. But Jesus didn't come down. He is faithful. He is the faithful son of God who died not for his sins, but the sins of all who would trust and treasure him. Is the son of Adam. He is the sin-bearing representative for all who turn to him. As the son of God, he is the righteousness for all who will trust in him. Will you do that this morning? And when that happens, all of us hear those words. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. And who I am well pleased. And as for that kingdom, Jesus didn't, didn't just die, he rose again. He rose again, conquering Satan, sin, and death. And one day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's this Jesus. But Satan still hasn't given up. Temptation number three. Distort the Father's promises. Verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. The devil hears Jesus quoting scripture and says, Jesus, you trust scripture? I have some scripture for you. I know the Bible. Let's, let's do a little Bible study. I mean, we're at the temple. Let's open up the scroll. Let's get after it. So what is Satan doing? He 
He's challenging Jesus to throw himself down in order to prove his sonship by setting up an angelic rescue. And what does he appeal to? The Bible. Psalm 91. But Psalm 91 doesn't promise God's miraculous protection for doing stupid things. Even if they're cloaked with spiritual reasons. Psalm 91 is about God's protection of His faithful people, especially in the midst of divine judgment. It's when trouble comes, not if you place yourself in danger. But the devil is tempting Jesus to question God's presence and distort His promises. How? By twisting Scripture. Beloved, you've got to see this. Don't be fooled. Satan knows the Bible better than you. And he will take God's word to make you question God himself if you're not careful. The devil's temptations are not just sensual, but spiritual. He won't just tempt you to be selfish and secular, but super spiritual as well. To where you distort God's promises. But again, the core of the motivation hasn't changed, has it? What is he doing? If you're the son of God, did God really do it? Again, he's not trying to get Jesus to doubt his father's ability to save them. He's trying to get Jesus to doubt his father's affection for him. That's what this is about. But Jesus doesn't have to prove it. Why? Perhaps. Because the words of his baptism are still ringing in his ear. This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus says, listen, I don't have to prove it. Okay, it's already been spoken. Jesus doesn't bind the lie that we can somehow assure God's love by saying, if you truly love me, then you will do this for me. That's not what Jesus does. He trusts his identity as God's well-loved son. There's no reason for Jesus to needlessly and faithfully test what's already been affirmed. So Jesus responds, verse 10, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Again, this quotation comes from Deuteronomy 6, 16. In the wilderness, the Israelites put God to the test by demanding he provide more water. And when it doesn't go as they want, they say this. Is the Lord among us or not? Because they question God's presence and protection, they faithlessly demand something from God. But Jesus will not give into the same temptation. Like any good Bible scholar, he uses Scripture to interpret Scripture. Satan tries to twist God's promises to get Jesus to demand things from God. He's like, no, that's not the game that I play. Scripture leads me to God and I treasure Him and His presence. Jesus knows that testing is not trusting Anytime we demand something from God, we cease to trust in the goodness of God. I want to go on a rant right here about Gideon, how that's not a good way to get things from God. We don't have to test God. Jesus knows his Bible. He knows Psalm 91. That God promises to, to protect his own even in trouble. He takes God at his word. So he doesn't have to trust them. See, Jesus would trust himself to the promises of the Father. But it wouldn't be by jumping off a temple. How would it come? 
by hanging on a cross. And what would he say? This final breath. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Adam failed. Israel failed. But Jesus was faithful. And because of this, Jesus, the sinless Son of God, defeats Satan in our place. That's Luke's point. You don't have to be defined by your failures, no matter what they are. And you cannot earn God's favor. The work of salvation is complete by Jesus. His life, His death, His resurrection. Now we we are free to admit our failures, to confess our rebellion, and trust Jesus alone. We're united to Him by the Holy Spirit, and all that He is becomes ours. And the Father says, It's my beloved Son, it's my beloved daughter, in Him, in her, I am well pleased. This is the glorious good news of the Gospel. If you want to know more about this, ask the friend who brought you or come find me afterwards. We'd love to help you understand this even more. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, as you hear these words, realize, yes, Satan is going to tempt you too. If he's so bold that he will go after Jesus, he and his forces will also go after you. You probably will not be tempted to turn stones into bread. The impossible usually doesn't tempt us. But the illegitimate does. And even more shaky, so does the legitimate. Like Jesus, you're going to be tempted to take good desires, good gifts, and use them for self-gratification apart from God's will. You desire friendship, you're going to be tempted to lie to get people to like you. You desire good grades, you're going to be tempted to neglect church and gospel communities so you can study you desire approval, you're going to be tempted to pridefully post on social media. You desire your children to obey, you'll be tempted to control them with your anger. You desire intimacy, and you'll be tempted toward lust and sexual immorality. You desire security, and you'll be tempted toward greed. You desire companionship, and you'll be tempted to date a non-Christian. You desire fun experiences, and you'll be tempted to travel so much you functionally reject committing to the church. None of those desires are inherently bad. But Satan is the great deceiver. And though you may not be tempted to be king of all nations, you will be tempted to setting up your own little kingdom and protecting it. You'll be tempted to find your identity, your status, your worth, and success, power, prestige, job title, acronym behind your name. Accomplishments, money, possessions, resume. Again, don't hear me, beloved. These are not inherently bad. Ambition, good things. But it can quickly turn into an idolatrous thing. Whatever it is, Satan will whisper in your ear. Did God really say? If you're the son of God, if you're the daughter of God, why is he holding out on you? Is he really a good, good father? If he truly loved you, you wouldn't feel this way. 
you to have that thing. You see, that experience you had denies that he's good. Maybe you should test God a little bit to see if he actually loves you. Maybe you should twist that scripture, because it didn't really say what the church has said it, said it for, for 2,000 plus years. Twist it so it fits your own preferences. He's subtle. Just like with Jesus, the center of every temptation is an assault on our status as sons and daughters, and what it means for God to be a good, good father. Every temptation is really just a rehashing of did God really say? If you're the son of God, if you're the daughter of God, beloved, in these moments, will we let our feelings or God's facts govern our shape? Will we have the humble humility and grace to let God's explicit word inform our experience? Will we remember who we are united to Christ and trust the Father's goodness and provision? Or will we believe that God is always disappointed with us and holding out on us? Will we seek the fleeting approval of finite people and a shallow pleasure and a limited kingdom? Or will we rest in the approval of God our Father and long for heaven, the eternal kingdom that will never cease? In these moments, what should we do? Two things. Remember and rehearse. Everybody say remember. remember. Everybody say rehearse. rehearse. Remember. Like Jesus, we don't have to fight the schemes of the devil to gain our Father's approval. Remember in Christ you already have it. See, our belovedness by the Father gives shape to our behavior. It's not the other way around. When you don't know who you are, and you do not know whose you are, you do not know which temptations are worth resisting and which sacrifices are worth making. So, beloved, remember. Remember who God is, what God's done, what God has promised to do, and what he has already said, past tense, about you in Christ. And as you remember, rehearse. Do what Jesus did. It is written. Soak in Scripture. Pour yourself out in prayer. Feed on the Word of God. Look to Jesus. Gaze upon the Gospel. It is written in the presence of God there's the fullness of joy. It is written God loved me so much He sent His Son to die for me. It is written that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is written that God rejoices over me with singing. It is written that He will hold me fast. It is written that a day is coming when all the brokenness of the world will be gone and the temptation of sin will be forever removed and I will gaze at Christ face to face. It is written. Invite other brothers and sisters to rehearse these things with you. I am so encouraged by the ways you all do this. As you disciple one another, as you get to know one another in your community, even as I hear conversations after church on Sundays, rehearsing the truths of who we are in Christ, continue to be physicians of the soul. Use the scalpel of God's word to uncover and remove the lies of Satan. And then, like a good doctor, bring the balm, the medicine of the gospel, and wrap it on your wounded brother or sister. Let's pray, church, that the Holy Spirit gives us grace to rest and rejoice in our status and identity as cherished children of our Heavenly Father. Reminding us, rehearsing, that we fight a defeated devil because we're united to a conquering Christ. 
Let's continue to be vulnerable with our struggles, our temptations. Let's continue to gently yet courageously remind each other of who we are. And there's good news. There's good news. When you fail, you don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to defend yourself. Jesus is your righteousness. He defeated God in this place. And soon enough, for all who trust in him, we will enjoy him face to face forever. God, we do pray. We're so thankful that we don't have to fight to gain your approval, but we can look to the one who did. Oh, how thankful we are that Jesus, you are our representative and you are our righteousness. That in you we have all that we need. So let us, let us fight these temptations, the assault of Satan, not because we have to gain anything, but because we already have everything in Jesus. Let that be the frame of our soul. Thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, apply it to us that we might treasure Christ together. Amen.